cliffcentral.com. We're back. Welcome to the Burning Platform. Ah, hello, Leato. I'm very excited today. Leato is here with us and we're, we're, we're dialing down. Actually, we're going to dial down the, the, uh, the Burning Platform. We've got Leato's uh, joining us now and later we'll have Peter Stratum joining us um, just to talk about his experience in Japan. But Leato, welcome. Is your connection good now? And Leato uh, needs no introduction here. He needs no introduction here with us, but I think he's having a connection problems. Will you check in on him? Uh, is somebody going to check in on him? Because he did send me a message saying yeah, his yeah. And he's got a couple of things on his mind. But Bhagavantu? I, 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 yes. I want to hear Leto's views. I always enjoy his point of view. <laughs> I, I think I, he's, like for someone, he, he, he balances serious and, and a very interesting take very well. It's very engaging. And there's a lot happening in South African politics. There's yeah. a lot happening in South African politics today. There's a lot happening in South African <laughs> politics over the past week. Um, Peter's ready. So let's put Peter on while we, while Bhagavantu. Yeah. Just so you know, Peter, I'm so excited to have you here. And for our guests, I want you to know that Peter Stradham is a fantastic man and a great South African. He's not a <laughs> man. He's he's the president of Mway, one of the biggest network marketing companies in the world, and he's built an illustrative career in that business. He was in South Africa as the general manager for Mway South Africa, was the MD um, in Europe, and now he is in Japan and the president of Mway. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Pumi. Nice to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So, konnichiwa, everybody. Greetings from Tokyo. When I woke up at four this morning, I was so excited to see your message because <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're going to be able to make it. First off, how are you doing and how far are you from the, the Earth site? I know it was felt as far away as Tokyo, they say, in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was bad. I mean, we were, got woken up around about midnight, alarms went off and stuff like that. And um, it kind of shook for quite a while. I, I think it was around about two minutes. And um, I kind of I woke up and then I went back to sleep. <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> when I woke up this morning, I had all these messages on my phone saying, "Oh, you know what happened? And did you see it? Did you feel it? And is everybody okay? And everything?" I think, "Oh shit!" I was just sleeping through the whole thing. And uh, but yeah, it was bad. Uh, there was I think a, a centimeter tsunami, something like that, in Fukushima. Um, all the power was out in Yokohama, just uh, which is about less than an hour drive from Tokyo. And, um, yeah, and there was even a, a bullet train that got derailed. Like, so 17 carriages, uh, all 17 carriages got derailed. Nobody was injured. Um, oh, and, wow. um, yeah, I was taking a walk down the road a moment ago to grab some lunch and it's business as usual kind of thing. So, so you say it's business as usual. And I was thinking about that. If you live in a place that is prone to earthquakes as much as Japan is, wh- what is it? What is the side like? So you, you're from South Africa. It's in South Africa. We were talking about it as a great place, except we, except for the crime that we live in, which South Africans have kind of normalized, right? We've accepted we live in a, in a crime ridden country. Is that how earthquakes are too for, for the Japanese or for expats living in Japan? It's just like, this is something we've got to live with. Yeah, you know, it's a bit of both. I, I think that it is normalized. I was sitting at the kitchen counter the other day on a call like this, talking to somebody, and I had my glass of wine kind of out of sight, of course, so nobody can see it, and uh, on the side like that, and the, the whole room started shaking. We've got one of these lamps that has this kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's like a big steel thing that hangs, and it's always like my, my, my earthquake kind of meter because it starts bouncing up and down like this if there's an earthquake. And um, that thing started going crazy. And I kind of le- lent over. I grabbed my glass of wine so I didn't fall over. Priorities, eh? Yeah, right, exactly. But, heck, the first first year or two, I mean, we used to crap ourselves every time it happened. It was terrible. But then again, the other side of it is, I mean, there's so many protocols in place for when something does happen. Uh, here at our work, we uh, go through regular drills so that we know there's radios that you have. There's like a... There's a process that you have to follow. Yeah, no, it's all very, very, hey, this is Japan. Everything's very, very organized. Yeah, Japan's uh, efficient. When it, when it happens. Yeah, everything is very efficient. Trust the Japanese. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. It, well, it is crazy. And, you know, so 
the reason why I asked you to come on the show is we, we often on the show because it's the burning platform, all the burning issues, but we're also always looking at it. We're so close to everything all the time. And I really wanted to know just for you from over there far away, you obviously still have family here, I think, and you still look yeah. in our direction. You look backwards in our direction every now and again. What What is the view of the world or from Japan's point of view of South Africa and, and all of the shenanigans that are happening here? Oh, that's a big question, Pumi. I, I mean, know. you know, and, I, and to speak on behalf of Japanese, I guess that's difficult to generalize, right? But, I, but from my own experience, um, when, I, when I came here, people, my experience was people didn't really have an opinion about South Africa. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, it's so far away. Um, you know, we stuck here in Asia in the middle of the Pacific. And um, I think if for some reason, well, for obvious reasons, I guess, the Rugby World Cup in 2015 changed that because we had just arrived here and we got invited to, as it happens, to the ambassador's residence, which is right next to our apartment block. To of course. Watch, to watch the rugby game, right? As it happens. I must tell you about the South African ambassador's residence. I hope he's not listening. He'll ride me over in his motorcade if he hears it. Anyway, the, um, the point is, is like suddenly Japan played South Africa in rugby. Like the Nissan and, they, and they won. The Jap Japanese team beat South Africa. It was huge. And so we watched the game there. I'll never forget because like there was like half the crowd was Japanese. We were like these newbie kind of gaijin South Africans watching the rugby game. South Africa gets beat badly. It's two o'clock in the morning. You've got half the crowd with your know, painted white and red eating burrowvors with chopsticks. I kid you oh, not. Wow. Oh wow. They were they were brying in the in the garden and people were eating burrowvors with chopsticks. I'll never forget it. And anyway, the um and from that day, suddenly South Africa was on the radar, kind of in, in people's minds. So whenever I spoke to people about, you know, I'm from South Africa or whatever, immediately went to rugby. And immediately this big, fat, cheesy grin came on people's faces. They just loved the fact that they won, right? And that got rubbed in for four years. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's, people have this overwhelming sense of curiosity about South Africa it's a big unknown. Um, I do a lot of public speaking, and I tell you what, I often ask the question, um, hey, have any of you been to South Africa? Nobody. Nobody. Wow. Generally, nobody. So people don't really have an opinion. Um, and so, like, rugby's a touch point. Um, I think this recent, you know, the affairs that are happening in Ukraine and Russia are now a political touch point because people are saying, hey, WTF, where does South Africa stand in all this? Um, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's very, very curious. It, in contrast to where we, came, where we were living before in Germany, where people have a very positive impression of South Africa. People, Germans love South Africans, um, or so, shall I say Southern Africans, because they tend to conflate Namibia and South Africa. Namibia. <laughs> I know, exactly, yeah, you, you get it. So, but there's, it, it, it's very, very different depending on where you go. And speaking of Ukraine, I mean, President Zelensky yesterday, the Ukrainian president, actually in his plea to President Joe Biden, likened what's happening in Europe, in, in Ukraine, to uh, Pearl Harbor, which I thought was, I was just like, whoa, dog, that's a, you know, if you ever want to pull the, the heartstrings of Americans, Pearl Harbor is a big thing, which got me thinking about, I wonder where but Japan stands. This is for me. With the he Ukraine. didn't just go Pearl Harbor, though. Mm, no, he did not. But he didn't just go about Pearl Harbor. He went on about, uh, uh, he, he quoted 9-11, he did, I have a dream, and then he's like, I have a need. He laid it on but yeah, like yeah, like but what is the Japanese? Yeah, he laid it on thick. Like he pulled on all the American heartstrings, and like everyone in Congress was. Clapping. It was an point in World War Two. What is the trigger? It's the thing that really. It's the thing that America wasn't going to the war. You know, it's the thing that pulled America into the world. Yeah, war, like America was which, not in. So what? Yeah, what's the stats? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think I think you're right. Zelensky did the full on. You know to Biden, pack your bags, you're going on a guilt trip type of thing. I mean, this is like he laid it on thick. Um, and uh, but Japan, so, so yeah, it was fascinating. So Japan has has basically uh, put their you know, flag in the ground. They said, look, uh, we can't countenance what's happening in the Ukraine. 
um, are we going to, you know, side on, on the side of, of, you know, humanity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and they've, they've been very openly rejected um, what, uh, what Putin is doing in Russia. Uh, to the extent that, um, you know, just anecdotally here, uh, you know, tweets from the Russian embassy about Japan have been very kind of scathing and snarky and kind of, you know, are the Japanese are just Western puppets, you know, all that kind of stuff. Really? Yeah. So, but the Japanese are, are all in with the um, with the Ukrainians, and um, most recently they've opened their doors to. They don't call them refugees because that's a politically loaded thing here, but they call them evacuees. And so they've okay. already accepted. I don't know. It's like forty-seven or fifty have already come to come to Japan. Uh, we've made ourselves open to our staff members in the Ukraine. If they want to come make a life here in Japan, we will set it up for them. Um, it's a stretch, though. I mean, you know, you want to go from Ukraine it's all the way halfway around the world to Japan. It's a tough one. But, hey, um, I think it's, it's a, it demonstrates a generosity of spirit that I think characterizes the Japanese. For sure. You know, I, and I think just saying you've opened it up for your um, people who work with Mway. Let's talk a little bit about building a career in a foreign country. You know, a lot of South Africans, unfortunately, are looking abroad because of all the internet. The internal turmoil we have, a lot of people uh, looking abroad, moving from the country, trying to make a life somewhere else. Um, for people, for, for you, you've lived in Germany, which I, I think Germany is not as different as from South Africa. Japan is a completely different way of life, different culture, very far away. What does it take? What does it take to make it in a career in a foreign land? You know, well, that, well, I think it's different making it in a foreign land and making it in Japan. Uh, Japan has some unique nuances and idiosyncrasies that demand, I think, more from people. Uh, um, the We have a, a it's common knowledge here in Japan, uh, expat CEOs that come here, they either succeed well or they fail spectacularly. There's nothing kind of in between. And I think the people that succeed are the people that learn to work with the culture, not against it. Um, they tend to uh, approach the culture with humility and respect uh, and realize that we are visitors here um, and we're not here to turn people away around to our way of thinking. Um, I think the, the people that try and do that, oh, my God, and I've seen it, it the, the, the country, the culture will just break them. Um, and so to the extent that, I mean, when I started out, I mean, at my first uh, uh, assignment overseas was in Spain, lived there for a while, and then went to Germany and, and stuff like that. Um, but I, I started off very, very arrogant. I thought I knew everything. And um, and, and it's a South African trait. I've learned that. It's a, people tend to, we tend to be outspoken. Um, we have a comfort with profanity, you know, all that type of stuff. And, and we speak our mind. Um, and it doesn't really work. That people don't appreciate it. And I think I've had a lot of that stuffing knocked out of me over the years. And I think I learned a lot of humility over the time and say, look, you know, you've got to respect people and where they're coming from. And, and maybe I don't know everything. And, uh, and ten, nine times out of 10, you don't. But South Africans have an incredible work ethic. Almost everyone I talk to who's international and works with South Africans, they, you know, South Africans have an incredible work ethic when people move overseas. And I'm also just wondering, for people who have aspirations to succeed in a different environment, you know, what are some of the things that, as South, what are some of the South Africanness that we can take with us into the international environment that can sort of guarantee that we succeed? I think South Africans are fearless. I really think we're fearless. I think we're incredibly brave. Um, and I don't think we have, you know, too many sacred cows. I, I think that, that that bravery, that open-mindedness coming from where we come from, this huge, um, you know, it's a complex environment that we are, have, have, you know, are born into and that's our culture and it so, has so many facets to it. I think that makes us adaptable. Um, and so I don't know about work ethic. I'm actually a lazy bugger. <laughs> so you say. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm lazy. I, I, I like to work smart, not work so hard. But, um, 
But I, I have heard that. I have heard that South Africans work really hard. And I think it's pr- probably because they, they need to make it work, and they make it work. Probably the same as, um, you know, immigrants in South Africa coming from other parts of Africa work hard, right? They've got to make it work. I don't think it's much different from that. Mm-hmm. But I think he's stuck. Do you have questions? Okay, I think he's stuck. He's but stuck. Peter- <laughs> he is. This is why he hasn't got his finger in his nose or something like that. That would be terrible. Embarrassing me. But what about talent? Does talent count for anything? Yes. Yes, I, I think talent counts for a lot. Um, as in anything, I mean, work ethic plays a role. Um, talent plays a role. Uh, bravery play, plays a role. And I think just an open-mindedness plays a role. You know, for example, go to another country, learn the language. You know, it's an essential thing. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think South Africans are generally willing to do that, the ones at least that I've encountered, you know, in my, in my travels. So one of our uh, of our listeners here is asking a question, and I didn't know this about the Russian Japan contest on the islands north of Hokkaido. Do you yes. know about this? Yeah, there's four little I wouldn't even call them uh, islands. I'd call them rocky outcrops um, that are just north. <laughs> what you, you know, what you don't realize is is Hokkaido and the Russian mainland is a, like a. One like hour Canada. Flight. Like super close, right? It's like right there. Like Canada and Russia. Yeah, kind of thing. It's a, yeah, like the um, the Bering Strait. It's the same thing. And so there's these four little islands that had long been disputed um, uh, as Japanese territory, and the Russians contest that. And so there's this argument that's been going on for ages. Um, Shinzo Abe, the previous prime, previous, previous prime minister, made it a central piece of his foreign policy. Um, he didn't get anywhere with it, by the way. Um, and uh, I think that's probably back in the limelight now, although I think the last thing Russia's got in its mind are those four little rocks sticking out the sea. But then, you know, who knows? Yeah, if, if they really do have what the West fears is Russia having quite kind of ambitions of taking over like they did with Crimea that nobody said anything about, oh. there they might be something there, which would be... You know, fascinating because again, World War Two, Japan was on the other side of that war. Yeah, no, it's interesting if you look at post-war Japan. I mean, it's very much a product of its relationship with the United States. I mean, very, very much. I mean, it's they they absolutely bonded together over that time. So you know, you tend to find that foreign policy and all the, and trade. Uh, very, very oriented towards the United States. I mean, for example, you, you know, you won't find an Airbus airplane here in, in Japan. It's wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Mm. And just in terms of you talk, touch on trade, you know, how, how much trade does Japan, if any, does Japan ever do with South Africa? I mean, I know we're you know. Speak. I had this conversation with the trade representative a while ago. It was a couple of years ago, and I actually can't remember offhand. It's not substantial. Um, you know, it's, um, it's it, I don't want to say it. it's it's not substantial. So let me leave it there. I, I don't want to quote a number or whatever, but it's not very, very big. Are there opportunities for South Africans in Japan? For South Africans, you know, right now, there's not a lot of opportunity for any foreigners the borders are still closed to foreign um, business travel. So anyone, I mean, I'm trying to get uh, expats to come and work here. We can't get them in. They're not issuing visas to anybody. Um, so the borders have remained closed for, for because of this bloody coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, you know, you, were, you guys were complaining early on about the state of disaster. Well, we're still in a state of emergency over here. It's, it's coming to an end next week. Um, but they've closed the borders for ages. It's kind of like back to the 1850s, whenever it was, when they, you know, Japan, Japan really? had been closed. Japan was closed to the world for 200 years. Yeah. Or uh, more. I, I, I don't, I need to be corrected on that. But it's a long, long time. And then they opened to trade in the mid 1800s. And it's kind of like this last year and a half, two years, it's kind of returned. It's kind of shut the borders down. The, the foreigners will bring virus kind of feeling, you know. 
Um, and, um, and only now they're starting to talk about opening the borders again and starting to bring limited number of people in. So, you know, I would say that, you know, yes, there's opportunities for South Africans, but at the moment, there's no, there aren't any opportunities for anyone. Uh, there are still, by the way, there's still 150,000 uh, eligible foreign students that want to work and study in Japan that have been approved to study in Japan that can't get in. 150,000. Wow. Okay, that is a significant number. Well, you know, you, you bring up the coronavirus, and I've been reading a lot of about the resurgence in the East, kind of China's having a resurgence, and they're struggling with it. I, I think I even saw something about America, in America, with the resurgence of, like, corona and, mm. and a feared new strain and another wave and all of that kind of stuff. What has the coronavirus experience two years on been like in Japan? It's been horrible. For me, it's been crap. It's um, the uh, they've had these rolling states of emergency, uh, not the kind of lockdown you had in South Africa, by the way. It's well, you know, they legally they cannot do that, but um, you know, they closed restaurants at you know certain time. You couldn't drink alcohol. It was all that fun stuff. Um, but it's not like you had to stay in your home and you couldn't leave. It wasn't like that. Not like you had police, you know, patrolling the streets. But the Japanese are very I'm generalizing and very obedient. So you compliant, know, you're very compliant. So you know, if the government says don't do this, generally 90% of people don't do it. Um, and um, but the economy's been hit, restaurants have been hit. I was talking to a friend of mine who who runs um, the, um, the the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Rapongi. Um, last night, I was having a drink with him. I mean, for two years, he's had you know, if, if maybe 20% occupancy. Um, at the hotel, so it's it's been hard, and the governments had been having to fork out these subsidies to you know small restaurant owners and all that type of thing. Um, people flying in have to go through until recently um, hotel quarantine, like government hotel quarantine, and stay there. So those hotels have been getting subsidised by you know people like us that are travelling in Africa and stay there. Awful experience, by the way, absolutely horrible. But um, the um, yeah, and so you know, God willing, it all just it's finished. Meet on with us. I fear that there's going to be another wave, and there's going to be another knee-jerk reaction, and, and you know, so we go. Mm. And do you miss anything about home? Oh my God! Yes, of course, I miss. <laughs> I miss a lot. <laughs> I haven't been home for three years now because we did a year before the pandemic. Um, we were seeing family in Durban and Cape Town, and we said, "You know what? This next summer we're going to—I mean, this next Christmas we're going to spend in Japan." And then the pandemic hit, so we haven't been home for three years now. Um, but um, yeah, miss—you know—standing around the bar, having a beer, miss just. Being able to communicate with people, you know, you know, here you can't. I mean, you know, we, we, the, I always say South Africa is the land of the corny joke. You know, we're always making <laughs> jokes with each other and talking shit with each other, and you know, um, kind of revving each other. It's kind of part of our the way we communicate with each other. And the, and the more you give somebody a hard time, it means the more you like them, kind of thing, right? Well, here that doesn't work at all. Firstly, you've got to be able to communicate properly in Japanese. Um, and then small talk is not really a thing that, you know, you don't stand in the you know, cashier line in the shopping center and start talking to somebody. It's like everybody kind of keeps to themselves. Um, so, yeah, I, I miss the, I don't know, the social connection that we have with our, with our people, you know. There's, mm. there's nothing that will ever replace that. Sure. That's, that's, I mean, that is quite something, I think, because we, we often think, oh, it's always better far away. You know, it's no. always better. You get away from, get away from all of the stuff here. We get, and I was saying to the guys earlier, I feel a lot like as South Africans, we're in such a traumatized state right now. We do quite a lot of navel gazing, right? Everything is so loud and so close. It's the, the ANC, it's, it's this, it's the, every single day, it's murders, it's robberies, it's everything is so close and so loud. 
that we kind of don't have a chance to to look back and say, you know, what are the things that do work and what are the things that I can do to to better the situation to you know because we can't just sit here and and be be afraid. We need to. Yeah, it's true. It's true that you know if there's one thing that really aggravates me when I go home, it's the degree to which people are so negative. They just there's this endless complaining about the crime and the this and the that and and it's like it's not all better on the other side of the fence. Um, you know, you've you've got cor- corruption. Come to Japan; it's as corrupt as anything. Okay, you got to tell me a little bit more about that. I saw a billboard in, in India where Modi, a billboard where Modi is on the billboard, say, and basically the message of the billboard is: if you're going to be corrupt, guys, just also do your job. You can't be corrupt, just also do your job. I was just like, what fuckery is this? I mean, on a billboard. So tell me a little bit about Japanese corruption. I'd love it, to hear. It's it's corrupt. No, I mean, we'll put it this way. The government, the ruling party, a lot in Japan, the LDP has been in power for, well, since the Second World War. It's been the same party. It hasn't changed. Yes, there's there are elections and everything like that. So very conservative, um, the LDP, and, and they've been in power forever. And... Um, you know, if you look at the history of the formation of the LDP here, it was very, there were links to organized crime, there were links to um, the security apparatus in the United States and so on. So it was formed, but that's what it's been. So it's kind of, and you, you know, you and I well know that any government that is in place for an extended period of time is just it lends itself to corruption, right? It just, it goes in that direction. So there was one, I mean, one simple story that illustrates this is that during um, the, the initial phases of the pandemic, um, the, the government went on a kind of a communication blitz where they were going to tell people, you know, that they had to you know, wear masks, they had to be careful of their hands and um, all that type of thing and how people were going to be compensated if they closed the restaurants everything like that. I'm going to get some of the details wrong, but the principle is the same. So they, the government granted not millions, billions of dollars to this campaign. The campaign went to the national broadcaster and the, the biggest um, advertising agency here in Japan. And um, But get this, the intermediary was a small little shop over a, over a ramen eatery <laughs> somewhere, and, and all the billions of dollars went through there. They skimmed off like a big, nice chunk, have a nice day, and then the rest got passed on to the ad agency. Just one illustration. So the, the point is... So they have their own Zwellim Kizze. Is that what they, Yes, and, and they don't muck around, man. They do it big, you know? Go big or go home. So, um, yeah, but I, do I, people... Does it bother the people if everything works? I think the, the, the view that we have over here is that the reason it bothers us so much is because nothing works. You know, the hospitals right. don't work. The, the school system doesn't work. Nothing. Right. There's potholes on the road. That That's what bothers us. Does it bother the Japanese? It gives rise to this whole idea of harmony uh, in society. And, and, and anything that breaks that harmony is really frowned upon. You know, they often use the analogy in Japan of, of the nail. You don't want to be the nail that sticks up because a hammer will come and hammer it down. So everything's kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, to a certain extent, it might give rise to a certain degree of mediocrity, but um, it's very safe. It's very predictable. It's very organized. Um, and it doesn't give rise to this, you know, the righteous indignation which we were talking about earlier on. Peter, Japan is also a very homogenous society. Everybody's Japanese. South Africa, on the other hand, has a, a melting pot of lots of different types of people. Do you, in your experience, do you think the homogeneity of this of the you know of the culture in Japan also makes it easier for the tolerance for the harmonious way of living that we don't experience so much here. Yeah, I guess I guess so. I think that's that would be true. I mean, it is very homogenous. We did we did that uh, ancestry um, DNA test a while ago, right? 
And it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm like a total fruit salad. I mean, DNA fruit salad. And, um, but if you test anyone here in Japan, nine times out of 10, it's going to be hundred percent Japanese, hundred percent. And, um, Imagine. you know, and, and so, yes. And, and it makes people very proud of their culture. Um, and, um, people that don't fit that mold tend to be excluded. Um, so, for example, if you've got, they call them um, hafu. A hafu is a half Japanese, half, half. something else. So let's, hafu. <laughs> that sounds like a Zulu word. <laughs> really? It's called half, no, so you call it hafu. And uh, anyway, if you're hafu, it's like you, mm, you're kind of like a second-class citizen. It's like, sure. you, yeah, it's very, it's, very, very clear. It's kind of weird, um, but it's there. So, you know, you can call it racism, you call it bias, you can all of those types of things, but that exists. That exists very strongly. And, you know, a mate of mine said to me, he's been living here in Japan for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. He's an old, old guy. And he said, hey, Peter, you're going to try and integrate into Japan, right? So I said, yeah, I'm going to try. I'm, trying, I'm learning my Japanese. I'm doing all that stuff. He says, don't bother. You will never, wow. ever integrated and uh, he didn't doesn't mean that it, it does not bad it just is right it's not a judgment uh, thing it's just is what it is that's what it is you've got to recognize it yeah fun <laughs> I, so I did ask Bagabantu, who seems to be having a lot of like coming in and out because I was just like Bagabantu is is an intern here and I thought this is is a is international exposure for you Bagabantu. <laughs> I know I'm very proud of you for doing that. Thank you so much. But you know, one of the, do you have a question, Bakabandu, before I ask my question? Mm. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. <laughs> We're waiting for your questions. Like uh, it was from, it was from the, sorry technical issues, but yeah, uh, it was from uh, wrestling. Funny enough, uh, I follow uh, wrestling a promotion called New Japan Pro Wrestling, and like Japan is fascinating to me. <laughs> Japan is fascinating. We can't hear you. Oh, you, you can't hear me. Uh, While they sort out their technical issues, I'm going to ask back. this question. Yes, you're back. Okay, yeah. So, like, in terms of, like, I think this, their state of disaster in terms of, like, the impact on the economy, I thought it was worse in Japan because I watched it live, like, with a promotion called New Japan Pro Wrestling because I'm, I'm a wrestling fan. And, like, they literally shut it down during the COVID, like, pandemic. And then they still paid everyone because they got the Japanese honor system and whatnot. Like, people you know, honor in front of business and whatnot. I respected that. But, like, that was a huge impact on the promotion. Like, in terms of, like, uh, like from, the, from a business point of view. It was, like, really bad and damaging. So I wanted to see, like, the impact on, like, just normal day businesses in Japan. Like, that surely, like, that culture of putting people first and whatnot had an impact on, on businesses and, like, on the ground level in Japan. Huge. Huge impact. I mean, if, you, if you're a small, um, you know, restaurant owner that you make ramen every day, you, you, you've got a hand-to-mouth existence. Commuter traffic dried up overnight, so you, you don't have a business anymore. Um, hotels got decimated. The tourism industry decimated. Um, the, uh, so the retail sector, um, really, really hard hit. So, you know, you take a, um, a city like Tokyo, uh, the retail sector and, and the restaurant industry rely on tons of commuter traffic. I mean, you've got millions of people commuting into Tokyo every day and then leaving, millions. And so they've got to eat uh, inside the city. All of that dried up. Um, give, you, give you an example of scale. The um, one station in Tokyo, the Shinjuku station, uh, is one of the largest in the world. It takes around about three and a half million passengers per day. 
That's more than the whole population of Washington, D.C. That's one station. So that, that stuff dried up. So pe people were hurting. Um, and so, yes, they got some government subsidies, um, but it, no, it went nowhere near, um, you know, making up for where they were before. And it's still not, not back yet. I mean, I was walking through um, uh, Shibuya, where our office is here, and um, at lunchtime, and it was, it was busy-ish, but normally it would be a crush of people. Mm. Um, but it was kind of, I, you know, looked over my shoulder, walked across the road kind of thing. It's kind of like sparse. You know, and the, the traditional um, views of Tokyo, you've got that crossing. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a crossing that everybody crosses like at like the same the time. Big crowd, that's yeah. Kind of, yeah, that's kind of just down here. That business not so busy anymore. Um, whereas, you know, for us, we're an e-commerce business. And so, you know, our business baby got dented. So we were fine. Um, wow. But, you know, you're in retail, you got a shop, you got a restaurant, you're in the river, all that other stuff, you were you were hurting badly. Yeah, because like... I was going to ask you about the business. Yeah, like that's what, I, that's what I noticed from like a business point of view. I'm like, I think in South Africa we had it bad, but like watching it like in Japan and also like the cultural differences and like the people, they had like a great response to it. It was, it was overreaching to a certain point. It was like very like shut down, almost like China levels of lockdown. But it was like, I was just wondering on a day-to-day -day basis, it, like Tokyo must have just went quiet. Which is like for a city that never sleeps must have, must have been weird. It was it was it was eerie. Um, you know, the first lockdown was like that. I mean, everybody stayed at home. You, you walk down the, the middle of you know the street in Ginza or Shibuya, these huge high rises, and the streets are like ghost town. It was kind of weird. I mean, we saw all those pictures, right? New York, Manhattan, all the cities, Paris, Rome, all of them. It was like that. But I think. When we got to the second, third, and fourth lockdown, I think people said, screw it, man. I need to get on with my life. And so um, it kind of pragmat prag pragmatic behavior kind of crept back in. Um, but it's still not back at the level it was, I mean, pre-pandemic, I have to say. So Leto is still having problems uh, reaching us, but he's got a question. Peter, and his question is, is a little bit like my view on the homogeny, is he, he wants to know if, does it feel different, this government overreach and the fact and the way that the government is, because there is a cultural philosophy of compliance we spoke about before, and, and a, a kind of soul understanding of the way things are versus how South Africans, every one of us, have absolutely different um, departure points for how we view what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is not, what is overreach, too much and too little. You know, does that play a role? You know, I, well, I tell you what, you want to see overreach? Come here. I mean, I don't think that the, this, this government in South Africa is anywhere near what you experience here. They, I heard Japan described the other day as a police state with a smile. And uh, it's kind of, it's kind of it, it, you know, put it this way, uh, more than 97% of prosecutions in Japan are successful. So the, pros the prosecution rate is going to be 97 to 99% successful. So this whole system is designed to successfully prosecute people. Um, we so need you, to send Shamila Patoyi over there for some lessons. <laughs> so you get caught up in the legal system here, and it's you, you got trouble. So you, we all know, the, you know, you know the Carlos Ghosn case. I mean, he, you know, he got he had to escape in a music box and all that sort of fun stuff. But in one sense, there's truth to it. He knew he wasn't going to get a, a fair trial. But so, so how do people feel about that overreach? I think it's kind of accepted. I think there's this general feeling that, you know what, we know that the system is a little bit rigged, but it's rigged to protect me. It's rigged mm -hmm. to protect me from, you know, predatory behavior of multinationals, of, you know, scam artists, whatever the case may be. It's designed to protect me. So I think it's generally accepted. Like, wouldn't so that no be my, that's my opinion? <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> no, I was going to say, so you no know, no, like from a but point like of view. Uh, no, I was saying like from a point of view of like uh, like for, from being a South African and not trusting the government. Like that must be like really like different. Like 
Where like where you like in Japan, like everyone trusts everyone. Like it's it's a pretty trusting society. It is pretty trusting. I still don't trust the bloody government, though. Virginia, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, don't. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a change, I guess. That the cynicism which we have, which we, which with with which we view kind of authority or government and stuff like that, I would say it is a very Western construct, mm. um, in my opinion, at least. Uh, you know, you won't find that in Japan. You'll find you won't find it in China for sure. Um, um, maybe in Korea, Koreans, Koreans are very, very, you know, um, outspoken, no. you know, and stuff like that. They're also very, very divided, you know, between the consumers. Well, I was going to ask you about the relationship between Japan and South Korea, because we know the relationship between Japan and North, North Korea. Korea. <laughs> what is what is that relationship like? I mean... Yeah. Well, there's history there. I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm a bad, I'm a bad person to ask this. I, you know, I, I, there's people here that could answer this here much better than I can. But there's history there. So there's, um, you deep know, deep history of colonialism. Deep, deep history of uh, where you know Japan colonized Korea, um, and, um, and very a lot of bad stuff happened there. So you know. And America a, good came. a good illustration of this. I brought a um, an expat from Korea into a management position here in Japan, and uh, it was a disaster. Sure. It was a total disaster. I mean, they just it didn't work on a number of levels. Culturally, um, the, the Koreans tend to be very you know, let's go for it. it. Doesn't have to be perfect. You know, go go go, and and very uh, demanding. Um, whereas here, it's. Um, very measured, get it perfect, um, all that type of thing, and then you factor in the, you know, the Japanese Korean history, and it was, uh, it was one of my my mistakes I made, uh, shall I say? Jeez, uh, but but generally, the the relationship between the two countries now, uh, it, it's tense. Um, you know, there's there's a thing. I, 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 I probably shouldn't go into it too much, but there's a thing with when this happened. Um, the Japanese took comfort woman from Korea um, and have never apologized for it, and and still haven't apologized for it. And so this goes on and on every year. It's like a thing, and there's so there's always this this tension. There's this sense of um, Japan hasn't properly atoned for its sins um you know back in the day and um and that's that leads to a lot of political tension mm. what could south africa learn from japan efficiency oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> i did that didn't i think i think a, i think a lot i, I think i think I think the Japanese could learn a lot from South Africans not to be so compliant um, and to be more questioning and critical. I think that's that's a, that's one thing that Japanese can learn from South Africans. Um, I think that um, the South Africans could learn something from the Japanese in terms of making a society work. Um, there's a focus on education, educating your kids, making sure that they go through that process. And, you know, I know you guys were talking about this early on, but really it isn't about teaching you to do stuff. It's teaching you how to think and think for yourself and think critically and, and all that type of thing. Um, they care for their old people. They really care for their old people. Um, and it's an aging society, so they have to. Um, and so there's this sense of um, societal responsibility um, that I think for all its faults, uh, for all its overreach, um, I think is is praiseworthy in many respects. It's an aging society, you say, and it's, this is a problem in the East. How, and I think Japan, probably China has a lot more of it, but Japan is also in that space where there are lots more old people than young people, and it's, it, it's a precarious place to be in for a country and for an economy. How are they dealing with that? Uh, Pumi, a great question. They're dealing with it badly. 
Um, so, uh, yes, it's the fastest aging population relatively in the world. So we've turned the corner. The population's going down now at speed, and it's picking up pace. Um, t- t- China's still got to turn the corner, but it's inevitable. They'll turn the corner soon, but they have, they're not there yet. So Japan's turned the corner. They're going down. Um, so Japan are looking to uh, robotics to fill the gap. So, you know, uh, certain medical care, um, things like that. So they're looking to fill the gap with, with technology, basically. Um, they have still maintained a very, very strict view on immigration. It's very hard to immigrate into Japan. Um, and I think ultimately immigration... They're going to have to open up. You're going to have to. I mean, that's the answer to anything. You've got to have people. And, and yes, they're not going to be genetically pure anymore. Um, <laughs> li- literally. Um, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Genetically <laughs> pure. pure. Oh, that statement. Call it, call it what it is. It's, it's loaded. It's, mm. But it's, it's the truth. Is that important to the Japanese, this, yes, this genetic purity? So yes. there, there's not a lot of interracial. Um, and, and when I say interracial, I mean Japanese white. doesn't necessarily have to be Japanese black, but Japanese and other. I've seen both. And um, so it, it exists. I mean, it's great. Um, but it's still, I'd say it's rare. It's rare. I think there is a, there's a tendency to prefer homogeneity than um, variety, shall I say. Um, and I think so, in that respect, I think Japan's got a long way to go. Um, they really do. There's, there's a certain snobbery in that kind of looking for that kind of purity, isn't there? Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and I'm wondering what kind of, is there anything, what kind of, problems that raises. I think about kind of if I think about the Jewish society here in South Africa that's so small and therefore also has peculiarities because of their not not having enough genetic diversity, right? Does Japan have any kind of those kind of peculiarities that don't exist anywhere else in the world? Uh, you mean relating to its its homogeneity? Yeah, it's 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 genetics. I, Do you know? You wouldn't I, know. I, you know, to me, like anyone that is an international citizen, people are people, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't see that there's any advantage or disadvantage. I just think it's people. And I think it is an element of snobbery. And I'm, I'm generalizing horribly here. I mean, it, it's, I can't, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody. These are very general kind of this is a, you, We absolutely here at Cliff Central completely understand that these are your personal views. <laughs> Yeah, yes, I told him to your cut loose. Or your spouse. <laughs> no. um, yeah, I see there's some, there's some chats. There are some uh, idiosyncrasies in, uh, yes, some of those areas. Um, the porn industry, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but like, no, I'm reading, reading your comments. It's kind of, there's some interesting stuff coming up there. No, no. But um, in, in terms of like, in terms of like, like the genetics and like how they so like they like they're so interested in like your purity and whatnot. Like Peter kind of mentioned something like a word that he just dropped by. Like he's like gaijin. Like there's words like that. Mm-hmm. We're in South Africa. Like pro, calling someone a foreigner, it, it's not a nice thing. It is what it is, but like it's it's really not a nice thing. But like like again, Japanese being blunt and precise, you're a gaijin, and you can't you can't grow your way out of that. You can't integrate yourself. You can speak fluent Japanese. You will always there'll always be that cultural barrier that you're a gaijin. Yes, I think that you've summed it up perfectly. You'll always be a gaijin, and I'll refer to myself as a gaijin, as do all my my colleagues in the same boat and and we get referred to that way and um referred to that way yeah. yes. to your face yes no no problem and it's not i don't think i mean i don't take it as a derogatory thing i think it does have certain overtones to it but i think it's just it's a descriptor it's like you, you're not japanese you a foreigner you somebody else and um and this, I mean, if you go to Germany, you're an Ausländer, you're an Outlander. I mean, and so it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to Spain, you're an Extranjero. You, you know, so there were all these words in all these cultures for these things. Um, and yeah, you know, you just got to roll with it. 
But like, but Japan, Japan is the dreamland, Peter. Like, it is like the dreamland. It's you want to, like, I would want to go to Japan just like on the culture point of view. Like somebody in the like in the comments talked about like in Japan, you can buy an iPhone from a vending machine. Like that, you can buy a lot from a vending. You can buy a lot from a vending machine. I've I've heard like the weirdest stories, like how people buy like, uh, okay, okay, this is Cliff Central. You can say this. You can buy girls' panties on a from a vending machine. You know, I've heard that. I've never seen that vending machine. Not that I would want to buy anything from it. Oh, are you looking, Peter? But 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 you can buy a lot of stuff out of a vending machine. That's true. Um, And get this: the vending machines are never vandalized ever. They Jeez. are. Everybody respects. Imagine having all the vending machines in South Africa. It'd be a hoot. It'd be a hoot. It'd be a spectator sport. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, it would be it would be wonderful to to bring you here to Japan and host you sometime and go see some wrestling, some sumo. My wife is a huge sumo wrestling fan. Wow. And uh, yeah, so um, maybe next. I just time. want to say about sumo wrestling, and which is one of my favorite things about the idea, because everybody look, looks at sumo wrestlers and they're like so big and so everything, and people are all trying to have like a six pack. Just know that the core strength of a sumo wrestler is very severe, much higher than that of a, a some gym buddy with the six pack. Just know. They are, they are. I agree with you, Pumi. They are super, super, super strong and super flexible. And the whole tradition around it, the um, the, the the theater, it's just it's it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Makes me feel better. Those sumo wrestlers and and knowing about their yeah. strength makes me feel better about my mukaba here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great! Peter, this is wonderful. I am. So delighted you were able to join us. I really am. And this conversation for me has been very enlightening. And now because of the the comment here about porn, the Japanese porn industry, I, I can see myself going into a black hole on the internet now, trying to figure out what's, what's there's, happening there. There's certain things you don't have to research. I think this is one of them. <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's don't a Google fascinating it. thing but to like, know. Don't Google it, like Stick to anime and yeah. <laughs> but also there is a porn industry wonderful. around that. <laughs> and how do we say thank you in Japanese? Arigato gozaimasu. Arigato gozaimasu. Thank you That's very it. much. Perfect. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And thank you Love for it. coming on and shuffling your day. And even in the midst of an earthquake, indulging no. us with this conversation, you are magnificent. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you or both. And uh, wonderful to be connecting to my, my country people. And uh, yeah, wishing you a wonderful day. And uh, thank you very, very much for having me. Thank you and goodbye. And I think that brings us up to just on two minutes before the show yeah. ends. And uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. Bagabantu, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did. It for me. I'm, I'm definitely back next week. <laughs> <laughs> I hope next week, we got let down by, um, because of the ComAir saga, the person we had lined up for today um, got caught up in the ComAir saga and the flights and the this and the this. And so he's going to be joining us next week. I'm also excited about that conversation. Join us, Bakabandu, if you can. And to all the listeners, I'm so grateful that you stayed with us for the entire two hours. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Peter as much as we did. And we will see you next week. Peace out. Peace out. Cliffcentral.com.